This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. in the investment community. Listen to this, everybody. It is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal on this Friday, uh, not only in the past 60 minutes, but also in the past eight hours. How a gathering at uh, the Hamptons last month and what everybody kind of was talking about, or Simone Foxman wrote it. She's wealth reporter at Bloomberg News with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Were you there? I was there. It was, You're it so was cool. very swanky. Okay, say. so tell us what was swanky, where you were. Okay, well, this was a, a, a party for um, Tiger 21, um, which is an investment club, and it's, it, it, it emphasizes that members should be more thoughtful about their investments, so they even have a piece of, of their program where um, someone puts their entire financial life on the table, and they have, like, a, you know, their friends will, you know, give them, you know, go through their portfolio and say, here's what you're doing right, here's what you're doing wrong. Um, but one of the things that's really um, exciting about about uh, or exciting for the members of Tiger 21 is direct deals. And that is something that's exciting for lots and lots of people, you know, from Michael Dell to just, um, you know, a furniture store magnate who's made, you know, a couple, couple hundred million dollars. That's very exciting for everyone these days. So in other words, what? This is an, alter- an alternative to investing in a hedge fund or doing some other things? Right. It's a, I mean, not that you wouldn't be invested in the public markets, invested in private equity and maybe hedge funds, though. Everyone knows that that has not been the most wonderful place to be, probably, right. unless, you know, with with a few small exam, uh, small exceptions. Um, but these people want to be actually directly invested in companies. So they want to own a stake in a company. Um, and they're, but it's hard for them to do it when they don't have a ton of money. Um, weirdly enough, you know, multi-billionaires is one thing. You can put, you know, a million dollars here, five million dollars there. Right. You know, you have a couple hundred million dollars. That's, you know, it doesn't, that money doesn't go as far as you or I, you know, who don't have that might might think. Um, so ha- figuring out exactly how to get into direct deals is sort of the key question for these people. Is this kind of, like, you know, I think about there's, Bloomberg Business Week has a story that's talking about, you know, the bull run and why it's kind of a bit of a boring market. They talk about less IPOs and so on and so forth because there's lots of money around for companies, startup companies um, to access without having to go to the public markets. So is this a way for an investor to kind of get exposure to an interesting company also right yes this is exactly that um people see that there are you know fewer ipos your uber stays private for much longer and and they've seen people get wealthy off of just owning a really small piece of, of some of these companies so certainly some element of this is driven by um by the tech boom and um but but this is absolutely these people don't necessarily want to be invested in a fund they think that they have 
um, some insight right. that will give them better returns if they decide which companies they want to invest in themselves or they can get more exposure, you know, not going through a fund, a, a private equity fund, a venture fund. They, they want to do it themselves. You know, it's interesting. We have a guest later on, uh, the co-founders of Neo U. It's a, a streaming, global streaming fitness uh, platform. And there's a couple of investors exactly like that have just kind of, it looks like, plowed money directly into the firm. So what kind of things are they investing in? Is it all kinds of things? I think you say, is it an amusement park or something somewhere? Well, so someone <laughs> someone I, I met at the Tiger 20 event, 21 event had invested in an amusement park, and he said it unfortunately did not go so well for him. Right. But, um, but I mean, I think that's part of it. That's what you have to remember is these things don't always go well. So obviously, pre-IPO shares, um, particularly late-stage tech companies, the banks will often bring these sorts of opportunities to their clients um, as well. That's that's they're trying to kind of put their mark on this part of the world. Right. Um, but it's also things like real estate. Um, this has actually been happening even longer in real estate. But but then you can talk. You know. Companies um, like packaging companies has been a really hot one. I mean, it can be boring. Right? It can be a little bit boring in terms of some of the. Some of the well, I mean, I'm not saying package business, you know, is boring, but but nonetheless, <laughs> right? I mean, it's right, right. I, I think, and I think there are a lot of people who say the best investments, if unless you are. Um, a seasoned technology entrepreneur or really have some way of understanding uh, better than most mm -hmm. what's coming out of Silicon Valley or the new hot fintech, you know, you're probably better off doing something that, that you understand or, or jumping in alongside someone who really has better access to good deals. Tell us about, because um, Morgan, Morgan Private Ventures, I mean, so the investment community is waking up and taking notice of this. Absolutely. And um, mind you, this is happening not on the investment banking side as mm -hmm. much. The investment banks have now all developed these groups of bankers that cater to the really high-end uh, family office clients. But those are the ones with more than a billion dollars for yeah. the most part. Um, where we're seeing this play out is in the private wealth side. They want to keep these centimillionaires, um, you know, people with tens of millions of dollars right. um, as clients. These are really attractive clients for them because they, they, they make the, the bank a lot of money. Um, but they want to keep them interested. And one of the ways of keeping them interested um, is by offering... Uh, quote unquote direct deals. I, I would also point out that it's not truly direct when you go through um, Morgan right. Private Ventures, via, you know, as JP Morgan offers. Um, they're putting you into, you know, vehicles. And do you personally have a ton of say over the investment? It's probably arguable, um, right, right. And, and it probably varies from situation to but situation. But it's fascinating to hear them, you know, just kind of want to have a, a, you know, go right into a company, right, and not be part of an investment pool. Exactly, exactly. And to even have that choice. Yeah, to, exactly. Um, cool stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Simone Foxman, she is wealth reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Check it out on the terminal. Check her out on Twitter at Simone Foxman. As I mentioned, it is one of the most read stories on this Friday. Quick check on the markets. We've been bouncing around a little bit. Dow just down about 18 points. S&P slight decline. Call it unchanged. NASDAQ, it is down four. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Oh, baby, bring it all to me. So we're going to talk a little bit about 
bringing it on in the markets and how do you get to some returns and what's kind of an interesting marketplace although the bull market the longest ever continuing to grind higher our next guest wants to talk a little bit about choke point investing and why perhaps that's leading him to invest in some defense names let's bring in dryden pence ceo at pence wealth management roughly two billion dollars in assets under management based in the lovely newport beach california in our bloomberg 1130 studio newport beach is love it really is lovely it's, someone's got to live there and i'm happy i'm one of them <laughs> i'm jealous my sister lives nearby it's really great um talk to us a little bit about this environment what do you mean by choke point investing well, Carol, thank you for having me on. The, the choke point investing is kind of a military term where a choke point is a place and point And you in used time. to be a U.S. Army colonel. That's so exactly is, right. That's exactly I get the right. reference. Exactly right. And so a choke point is a point in place in time where everything has to kind of go through that point to get from where they want to be to where they're going. So when you look at the supply chain of human demand, you try to, we try to figure out what is the point in place in time where everyone has to use this particular company, this particular product, this particular thing mm. in order to get from where they are to where they want to be. Because companies located at the choke point tend to have pricing power and pricing power turns into excess earnings and typically better performance. So who has, who's at the choke, choke point? Who's located there? Well, in various you know, behaviors and various activities, it depends. So if you think about, we were talking about defense, if you're thinking about defense, you know, there's really only about 10 companies there's that are big. And the, no, there's not. Yeah. And so when you're looking at a tremendous amount of money going into that sector, you're going to see Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. Those are the companies that the money is going to be spent with. If you tend to look at other companies or if you look at e-commerce, and obviously there's Amazon, if you tend to look at media mm -hmm. and content, you'll see Disney and Comcast. So there's companies that absolutely dominate part of the supply chain the satisfaction of human demand. And so we break that down and identify those companies and we find that they typically do better and have better earnings. Now you sent us that, you know, some notes that you are focusing on the defense sector right now. Is it, you mentioned this choke point, is there something more beyond it? Is there some spending out, like you, there, we see the government spending more on defense, right? Well, there's two big things. The U.S. government is, you know, we just signed a very large mm -hmm. defense authorization bill. The U.S. government is increasing the defense spending dramatically, and we needed to. We had, you know, we had airplanes that couldn't fly. We had maintenance that wasn't being done. Our defense was being eviscerated by some things. And so we needed to spend that money, and we're doing that. But the big thing, in addition to that, is now we're forcing the rest of NATO to up their spending. Right now, they spend on average about 1.45% of their GDP. They're supposed to spend 2%. 2 right. And if you program that out and you look at it, that's if everybody just kind of gets to the 2% they're supposed to and they've agreed to, and they have to do so by treaty, that's another $686 billion. It's like a double of another U.S jumping into the defense sector. And so what's gonna happen if all those countries have to increase their defense spending, they need to really upgrade their equipment to do so. And if it's a NATO company, due to interoperability and things we have to do, because we have to be able to fight wars together, a lot of that's gonna be spent with US companies as well. That's interesting. So you're saying basically if an investor has some new money, this is where they should think about committing it to. I think there's a long run in defense spending for a number of years. Does it matter who's in the White House anymore? It does and it doesn't. I mean, the, the point of the matter is, if you have an aging aircraft fleet, you know, the world spins around at 1,000 miles an hour. It's going to get old and things are going to get aged and you have to repair those things. Right. So, But you know how, you know the thinking. I mean, you were in the military. It used to be thinking that, you know, if there's a Republican in the White House, we're going to spend on defense. If we have a Democrat, we're not. We really necessarily, we haven't seen that 
necessarily over the last few years. Not necessarily. Sure, so I, I think what we're going to see, regardless of who's in the White House, a continued increase in defense spending. The world is not necessarily a safer place. Peace isn't spontaneously breaking out all over. And there's going to be small regional conflicts, and the U.S. is going to continue to be involved in them. And then you're going to see the rest of the world trying to catch up. Uh, this NATO thing, I think people are really underestimating the amount of money that these com countries have to spend to meet their treaty obligations. And they're spending it. And they're spending it. That's really interesting. Um, you know, it's, uh, we've been kind of doing this with everybody. And I thought I'd just throw it with you before we wrap up. Uh, you know, here we are 10 years from the financial crisis. Uh, how do you see the market environment and this bull run that we've seen, the, the longest ever? Well, earnings are at, the market's at an all-time high because earnings are at an all-time high. So when you try to, you know, you know, they try to say, oh, let's put a time clock on the market. Well, times are different now. Technology has changed the way we do everything, and we think that the market and, and the economy has a much longer way to go. And the reason why is because earnings continue to increase, and we just had a big tax bill, mm -hmm. and that has made a dramatic change. So we think we've got more legs or, or more innings or whatever analogy you want to use. The point is, is we think this has, a, has some ways to go, and we're excited about it. The market's at an all-time high because earnings are at an all-time high. All right, good stuff. So I got about uh, friends of the White House. This week in Bloomberg Business Week, Tim O'Brien writes about the tarnished age with a little help from Mark Twain. Tim joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. He is executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, great to have you here. I love this story. Jason and I really like talking about it um, for the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tell us what you set out to do. Well, we're in a very unusual moment. I guess we all could use a little bit of help from Mark Twain. He's always there when you need him. Um, what we are trying to do uh, for people who might feel numb to this ongoing saga of financial conflicts of interest and various laws being broken is to try to put everything in one place to sort of encapsulate it, but also give people a chance to think about what it means and set this in, a, in a, both a historical context and a good government context. And that's what you did. You know, Donald Trump on the campaign trail talked a lot about draining the swamp. And so you take a look at kind of what, what's left in Washington in terms of the swamp? And there's still a lot there. Uh, right. I mean, he, you know, he clearly has not drained the swamp. He said he was going to institute new ethics rules for lobbyists and essentially sort of term limits for Congress to prevent members of Congress from trading off going into lobbying jobs. But he has an administration populated by people with deep business experience mm -hmm. uh, and substantial assets, which neither of those things are sins. Um, I think the issue that arises is whether or not those sorts of portfolios compromise the kind of public policy making they're doing. And that's a, an interesting point, right? I mean, and even going to Donald Trump's tax re returns, he doesn't have to turn them in, correct? That is correct. There is no, you know, the president of the United States, for good reason, by the way, is, is insulated from a lot of disclosure and a lot of laws because going back to the framers of the Constitution, they were worried that uh, a president would touch so many types of legislation and policy that if you put really rigid conflicts in, that person wouldn't be able to move. Right. Uh, in the 20th century, 21st century, people have been adapting to that in an ad hoc way, largely through the honor system. You know, presidents like Gerald Ford on the honor system have released their tax returns. Uh, so people would have some transparency 
onto the president's finances, but they're not required to do it. It's a matter of tradition. And in the, in the, in the same way, the president of the United States is, is above all of the conflicts of interest guidelines and ethics laws that apply to all the members of his or her cabinet, right. as well as most senior members of government. All right. Having said that, though, I, there's a line, I think, in your in your column, Trump's portfolio is a mass of ethical fault lines. I mean, there are so many conflicts of interest. And if you brought it out to those folks associated within his White House, whether it's his son-in-law, whether it's Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, or whether it's Wilbur Ross, commerce secretary, they've had a lot of business holdings that play right into their job. That's That's completely true. And I think unbundling that a little bit, the other, I think, unique thing about the Trump presidency is... I don't authentically think he ran believing he was going to win. Mm -hmm. He had run a number of times before, and they were always PR gambits and, and, and efforts to sort of enhance his business presence. So he saw it very opportunistically. And I think he was as stunned as anyone when he won. Right. And then he had to deal with the ramifications of that. And it was twofold. One was just setting up a transition team of good people. And then secondly, what to do with his own businesses and financial holdings. And he really had no intention of letting go of any of that. Well, take somebody, though, like Betsy DeVos, though, right? She did have some holdings in education, a for-profit. She ultimately did get rid of them, correct? She did. Most officials who come in, there's, they're, they're given a grace period, right. uh, which is reasonable. Uh, to unload their holdings. It's usually about 90 days. In both Wilbur Ross and Betsy DeVos's case, a year after they got their new jobs, they still held assets that were directly in affected by policy decisions they were making. Why do you think it's important to tell this story? Because I think, it's a, it, I think good government and ethical leadership is a nonpartisan, non-ideological issue. It's, I think, something as a community of people in the United States we can commonly share, which we believe companies should be run a certain way. We believe marriages should happen in a certain way. We believe governance should happen in a certain way. We have rules around all of these important institutions to achieve that end. Does it make it even more uncomfortable, Tim, because, as you point out uh, in your in your column, 30 people indicted in associated investigations of President Trump and his team, um, one convicted of fraud, Paul Manafort, some new uh, charges. Multiple frauds. Multiple frauds just on this Friday. Um, others pleading guilty to crimes. We're talking about bank and tax fraud. We're talking about campaign finance, finance illegalities, uh, lying to federal investigators. I mean, when you have that kind of stuff happening, does drawing the ethical lines become even that much more important? I think so, because this is an unusual administration. This is not business as usual. Washington has had corrupt people before. It's had people with conflicts, people who've broken the law. That's not a new phenomenon. Yeah. But you've never had an administration that is as riddled with conflicts of interest and problems with the law as this one. There, it, it doesn't compare. I mean, you could go back to the 19th century, right. which is why we invoked Twain, mm -hmm. because Twain saw this. You know, he famously gave the name the Gilded Age to that era. Um, and we have spent, you know, over around 145 years since then putting institutions in place that are meant to clean government up and, and, and create policy that's devoid of self-interest. And this is a humongous step backwards with these folks. Go back to the president, if we may, because you did say he didn't plan on probably winning, and so all of a sudden he was kind of scrambling uh, in terms of his own holdings. His company, it's still his company. It is still his company. He, um, you know, other presidents who've had substantial assets have set up trusts when they've gone into the White House. Um, 
Uh, in Trump's case, they set up a basic, basically a stealth trust. I would even call it a fake trust. Because if a trust is going to function, if you're putting your holdings into someone else's hands, they have to be you know, definitively a third party right? And, and, and not tied to you in any way. The people managing Donald Trump's trust are his two eldest sons who have said publicly that they debrief him anyway on the status of the business. And then his chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. And Weisselberg himself is now in an immunity arrangement with the Southern District of New York on the Michael Cohn investigation. There's really no distance here. All three of those people are extremely beholden to Donald Trump. They have been as such during all three of their professional careers. And there's still the hotel in Washington. And there's the hotel in Washington. On federal land. On federal land that President Trump leases to himself now that he runs the federal government. And uh, it's a venue that diplomats and um, politicians and lobbyists uh, have made their own because I think it gives you bragging rights in the White House to say you went and spent several thousand dollars or tens of thousands of dollars on food, room, and drinks at, at the Trump International. Um, part of this story, there's also a visualization component to it. We've just got about 30 seconds left here. It's interesting, um, and this is going to be updated. Tell right. us a little bit about that. Well, given the, the number of people involved and the issues at hand, I think putting things into a chart and moving away from text is just a useful thing for our readers uh, and our audience to be able to go to if they need a resource to get debriefed in an efficient, meaningful way. So check it out on Bloomberg.com, everybody. And do check out Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's on newsstands now. Tim's story is in there. It's a great read. Tune into Bloomberg Business Week with myself and Jason Kelly. It's tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And you can also watch Bloomberg Business Week Saturday at 12 noon Wall Street time on Bloomberg Television. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Aaron Cannon back with us, co-founder, CEO at the wealth management firm Clear Harbor Asset Management. Aaron, on the phone in New York City. Aaron, good to have you here with us. Where were you 10 years ago? Oh, gosh. 2008, <laughs> I yes. was, uh, you know, probably doing something similar to what I'm I'm doing now and, and wading through uh, different risks for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, this is what we've been thinking about all week. It's uh, on the cover of the Bloomberg Business Week magazine, you know, looking at, you know, this long bull market uh, run that we've had since the crisis. And there's a lot of stories in the magazine that kind of dig into what we've learned. You know, are we in better shape? Uh, should another crisis come? Uh, it is interesting, uh, the market environment that kind of came out of the crisis. Is it a more transparent market? Like, what do you think about it? Because we have a lot more machines involved, a lot more algorithms involved. Uh, you don't see a lot of companies going public like we used to. A lot of passive management has really, uh, you know, taken over the market. So how do you see it right now? Well, I'm not sure if it's a more transparent market. I, I certainly think if you look at the data, uh, passive is 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 uh, is growing, but still is the minority. Thirty odd percent of the U.S. public market is 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 deemed to be passive. So that's that's a growing uh, number there. Uh, I think the, the the type of investor transaction that's occurring is, is has shifted dramatically, not just over the last ten years, but twenty and thirty years from. 
from retail to institutionals. You tend to see, you know, big block trading occurring today relative to 20, 30 years ago. But uh, the economy is certainly in a different place today, and the market is as well. And uh, we uh, we welcome that. This market cycle, this even economic cycle at this point, do you see a lot more room for it to uh, continue? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think there's a warranted concern that because the economic cycle is, is perceived to be long in the tooth and because the bull market is relatively long in the tooth when you look at the post-World War II environment, it's it's perhaps the longest. Um, but, but the facts don't add up to uh, that uh, signifying a peak in the bull market. In fact, uh, bull markets do not usually die of old age. They're, they usually you didn't they say, say die. that. You, did you really say that? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it's true. It's interesting. They they usually a policy error or some excess in the market. And yeah. when we look at the market today, Carol. Um, you know, we, we take a look at, well, what are those risks? Monetary policy is still easy. It's tightening, but it's below the perceived neutral rate of 2.5%. And I think Fed Chairman Powell doesn't want to get too aggressive on the tightening front. So mm-hmm. that's a big plus. Consumer sentiment, business sentiment's really positive. Fundamental earnings numbers are strong. And actually, the forward multiple, the fundamentals or the valuation in the market, which is what we keep our eyes on heavily, too, is not excessive. It's sort of at that 25-year average rate at about 16 and a half times. Maybe it's a, I think the 25 year rate is closer to 15 and a half, but the last few peaks, we were closer to 25 and a half. And so, uh, you look at the, the, the retail investor base, bulls are are really not a large component of, of the retail market and hedge funds are not excessively long the market. And so, uh, we, we remain relatively constructive at the time. So, you know, what's interesting, too, I thought uh, in this story that I was mentioning that's in the magazine, is it talked a lot about because we have a lot of investors just kind of throwing a lot of money into some kind of index fund uh, to track the overall market, that through also technology, social media, you've kind of had the rise of activist investors again, and that when there's a problem, they kind of get it out there and companies kind of have to deal with it right away, right? It's out there in the public. And that in some ways, maybe that makes things happen more quickly. A company has to take uh, action more quickly when there's a concern or a problem out there. And that maybe that's a good thing potentially for the market and is something that provides that continued upward momentum. Well, I think you're on to something. I think for us, what it means, too, is that activism sometimes differentiates who the historically good capital allocators are in the mm-hmm. public marketplace and who who, who, who may not be. Um, so even in an area that hasn't performed particularly well this year, like Staples, you look at companies, and there, there, there are a handful of companies where you have consistent growth of earnings, and you actually have relatively elevated uh, price-to-earnings multiples. Well, what's interesting, you think, well, if they're elevated, maybe you don't want to own them. But I think they're elevated relative to the, the entire sector because the market is starting to realize that these are the companies where you want to allocate your capital because management is, ca- is allocating their investments in a great way. And uh, so I think the activism has, has provided some of that transparency. So in this environment where we're heading into, you know, I'm kind of like blown away this week how dense it felt again. And I feel like, yep, summer's over. Uh, You know, you've got the midterm elections coming up. We've got another Fed meeting coming up uh, very shortly. We'll start to get into earnings once again. Uh, How do you see all of that potentially impacting the investment uh, environment? And of course, looming out there is still concerns over emerging markets. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, geopolitical risk, you have, you have concerns about trade with China, you have concerns about uh, skirmishes on the trade front with Europe. We still have, we don't have really a deal with, with Canada. To some extent, we do with Mexico. But that's in the market. The market's a discounting mechanism. And so I almost view those risks as opportunities to the extent that we can settle a score or at least improve our trade relationships with China, um, to the extent that Brexit may be moving in the right direction and Europe can perhaps now negotiate with us on things like automobiles, these could all be net positives. Certainly there are headwinds, and I think the midterm election could stymie some of the, uh, some of the pro-growth policies that have been moving through uh, the marketplace, but a lot of those are now enacted in law and will play out over the next year or two already. So not too concerned about that in the near term. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Uh, Aaron, have a great weekend. Thanks so much. Aaron Kennan, he's co-founder, chief executive officer over at Clear Harbor Asset Management. More than $700 million in assets under management. Aaron joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.